Biz News Power Hour. Well, a warm welcome to you from the Biz News team. I'm Alec Hogg. Uh, here's Stuart Lohman, Nadia Swart, and Justin Rowe Roberts, as always, bringing you up to date uh, with the intro to our Biz News Power Hour that we run Monday through Thursday. So for us, this is like a Friday. Does it feel like a Friday, Nadia? It's getting there. It's definitely getting there. <laughs> okay, well, tomorrow, we've still got tomorrow to go, but for us, it's, uh, you know, we put our heads down and, and um, Fridays are a little easier uh, for us, certainly for Stuart, uh, who has to make sure that everything is done according to plans. Stu, uh, tell us how well those plans are working out as far as the biznews.com traffic is concerned. What are people reading? Thanks, Alec. Uh, nice day on the site today. The most popular is the Adrian Gore piece on mandatory vaccinations and his moral argument for, for them. It was a piece we had to run given the Niasa interview did. So we obviously we like balance. So we, we gave the community some balance there. Another piece is from independent financial um, advisor Dawn Riddler. She writes about RAs and are we seeing the end of them in the current environment or from what we used to know RAs as um, investors. And then a piece Nadia works on today is the Simon Linker reader column. He does generally one once a week, but he looks at the Joe Rogan fiasco. As we know, he caught, uh, as Simon says, the coof. Uh, it's not COVID, it's the coof. What does he mean by that, the coof? It's just his little nickname, or do, do people call it the coof? Justin, you've had the coof or COVID, uh, you and I. Yep. Did have COVID, Alec. I must say it hit me hard. Um, I guess different strokes for different folks. Some people react differently. It didn't treat me well. I know you handled it with relative ease, but you did have one shot of the vaccine. I had a me. vaccine. Yeah, that made a huge difference. But Justin, uh, the coof, have you ever heard of that? Is that a, a, a new slang that they might be using in London, perhaps? Was it, it hasn't hit Cape Town yet. Mm. We've, we've well, got to keep the slang, Alec, as, as first ran show us in there. They supply us a piece once a week and they talk about slang and how it's necessary in today's world. So I think COOF is a good, light use of the word COVID. So well done, Simon Lincoln Reader. Okay, and the other the other stories that are hitting the highlights? Uh, those are the top three. Um, nods on the pod, uh, video side. So there's been some good ones uh, in the last 24 hours. The video summary of Helen Ziller's interview that you did with her earlier this week. It's great. She calls out the IEC saying that there was sleight of hand and the broke ANC's tactics behind the rationale behind their attempt to postpone the elections. And the flash briefing from yesterday is also being really well watched, which covered Masondo's debt for climate swap proposal. That's and crazy, that, isn't video. it? I, I mean, yeah, you watch very, that video. Just very odd. I listened to the interview, and I mean, someone that's supposed to give, give clarity wasn't able to do so. So it's going to be interesting to see that play out. And then the third video is, of course, Magnus Haystack's interview from yesterday. Magnus is very popular amongst our community. Also popular at the Biz News um, Investment Conference was Rob Hersoff. And I managed to catch him. In between appointments today. So the audio is not great, you can hear. But I guess if you're a billionaire, you move from one appointment to the next. You know, we take what we can get. Uh, but it's an interesting chat that uh, that's coming up later in the program. Just after the usual intro with our Biz News team is the regular Tuesday evening market commentator who's on Thursday this week because of the Jewish holidays. It's uh, going to be really interesting speaking with Stephen Nathan. Remember, he's the guy who founded 10X and is now independent. After him, uh, a highlight package of the great debate that we held at lunchtime today 
between Pit Fulun, the money manager from CounterPoint, and Bernard Mostert, who is uh, one of the founders, co-founders of the company uh, Techie Town that was sold into Steinhoff just before Steinhoff imploded for three and a half billion rand. And they are now wanting to get Steinhoff liquidated so that they can get their company out of that mess. Clearly, there's uh, not too many Steinhoff shareholders who like that because if this were to happen, a Steinhoff shares would be worth zero. Also later, we'll be hearing about Standard Bank's new power pulse, fascinating innovation, and the man there uh, driving it or helping to drive it is Dinosh Maharaj, and then, as uh, mentioned a little earlier, Rob Hersoff. Stuart, uh, what are our community listening to on BizNews Radio? On the podcast side, Alec, last night's Business Power, I was actually top of the pops that side. Um, Magnus's interview, as we know, in second place on the most listened to. And then Justin's interview with Robert Graham from Purple Capital on Bitcoin and the use, obviously, in El Salvador and what that means for them with the EC10 um, bundle they've got. That had, well, was a really good interview and got uh, fantastic support, I see, on social media, Justin. Uh, but they do that, the guys from Easy Equities, don't they? They like to uh, promote each other when they get a little bit of publicity. But uh, crypto is uh, a, a popular uh, area on our site. People like it. Agreed, Alec. It was nice to see Charles Savage and the rest of the Purple Group slash Easy Equities team pushing on social media. They did get my Twitter handle incorrect by one bar, so I had to see it just as a result of following Charles himself. Um, but yeah, cryptocurrency, obviously it's back in the mix. As you say, you can compare it to Transfall Rugby when things are going well. Lots of people are talking about it. When it's going not so well, you won't really hear a dime. Western Province Rugby the same? I guess to some extent, although I'd like to think we're a little bit more loyal, Alec. <laughs> yeah, you certainly, uh, certainly when you were allowed to go to the stadiums, uh, Ellis Park would be empty when the uh, Golden Lions weren't playing well. But of course, when they started to get better, uh, it was full. At the moment, it's even if there wasn't any COVID, it would be just about as empty as that. But uh, anyway, it's now time to pick up on what's been going on in the headlines. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. What's in the news headlines, Nadia? South Africa's government is preparing to ease restrictions that were imposed to curb the spread of the coronavirus after a sustained slowdown in new infections. Larger public gatherings are likely to be permitted, making it easier for political parties to campaign for upcoming municipal elections, according to two people with knowledge of the deliberations within the government, but they've asked not to be identified because the information isn't public. Alcohol trading hours are set to be extended and a nighttime curfew will probably be shortened. The National Coronavirus Command Council met on Tuesday to assess the rules. President Cyril Ramaphosa will discuss planned changes with officials from religious groups, political parties and civil rights groups ahead of an address to the nation in the coming days when he's expected to move the country to virus alert level two from level three. South Africa's current account surplus for the second quarter missed estimates even as it widened to a record amid improving economic activity and growing exports following the easing of restrictions. The balance on the current account, the broadest measure of trade in goods and services, widened to an annualized surplus of 5.6% of gross domestic product from a revised 4.3% positive balance in the previous quarter. 
while that's the largest quarterly current account surplus on record, it's still less than the 6.7% median estimate of 13 economists in a Bloomberg survey. And Correctional Services Commissioner Arthur Fraser has admitted that he overruled a decision by the Medical Parole Board that Jacob Zuma not be released from prison and that he personally made the call to let him go. Fraser said that he provided many reasons and they were documented but only available to those who need to see them. The Medical Parole Board said that Zuma was in a stable condition and rejected his application to be released. Medical parole is typically reserved for those who are terminally ill or incapacitated, but Fraser said that Zuma was frail. Ach, Niemann. Arthur Fraser, he is the star of the President's Keepers of Jacques Poe's book. And he's he's the star uh, confidant and associate of, of Jacob Zuma. So he overrules... The medical, the parole, medical board. parole board. Yeah. Well, what what the hell is he doing as a minister in in uh, Ramaphosa's cabinet? Oh, he's place? just with his flock, Alec. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Isn't you know? that strange? The old the old uh, uh, let's not grasp grasp the nettle. Let's just allow uh, unity. And here we go. It's not much unity going on in the ANC at the moment. It'd be interesting. Any more news, Nadia? On uh, what's happening with the court challenge now that uh, the DA have put forward, constitutional court challenge, so that the ANC cannot register candidates that hadn't been registered by the deadline? No news, but I'm assuming it does seem like this whole easing of restrictions to allow for campaigning does seem to be related. It's a little bit co- too coincidental for it not to be, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, the ANC is certainly on the back foot when it goes into these municipal elections. Justin, uh, are our markets on the front or the back foot today? Not looking too good, Alec, with the JSE All Share Index sharply lower at 64,100. In the currency markets, the Rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 Rand 13 cents to the dollar, 19 Rand 56 cents to the pound, and 16 Rand 70 cents to the euro. Gold is down at $1,790 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will put you back around 27,000 Rand. Brent crude is flat at $72.40 a barrel. And Bitcoin is slightly up, trading around the 660,000 Rand level. In the financial news, Aspen Pharmacare is weighing up acquisition offers for its active pharmaceutical ingredient business, which involves the substances used to give medication its effects. In a market update on Thursday, the pharmaceutical giant said it had received two material unsolicited offers for the business. The company has decided to embark on a structured process to facilitate offers for all or parts of its API business from those parties that submitted the unsolicited offers and other selected interested parties. Sunlam has paid out 22 billion rand in death claims since the start of last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Of this, 8 billion rand was paid in the first half of this year in South Africa alone, the group said on Thursday, presenting its half-year results. Suntam also continued to settle contingent business interruption claims and paid 700 million rand to policyholders, in addition to the 1 billion rand paid an interim relief in August last year, bringing the total CBI payments to 1.7 billion rand at the end of August this year. The group expects that existing reserves should largely mitigate the COVID-19-related excess mortality impact on operating profit for 2021. Isn't that interesting? Uh, they fought it tooth and nail, and now that they've been forced, sometime that is, to pay out, uh, they are telling you how good they are by meeting the claims for 1.7 billion rand. Although I suppose on the other end, uh, when you've got 1.7 billion rand uh, at stake, uh, you might want to fight it. 
I guess it is ironic and uh, you can understand the insurers fighting. Alec. I think on face value, leisure and hospitality are, were obviously the hardest hit sectors. But if you look underlying now a year on, insurance seems to be one of the laggards in all of this. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Stephen Nathan is our man, usually on a Tuesday. Did you have a good New Year, Stephen? It was uh, very important religious holidays. Yes, uh, thank you. I did, I did, Alec. And we kind of, uh, we start our repenting for Yom Kippur, which is the big one uh, next week. So, so, but all going well, thank you. I recall the uh, developments when Viceroy brought out, well, uh, we can start with its Steinhoff report to begin with. It was on the money there. Uh, ahead of the game, saying that Steinhoff uh, was a fraudulent operation and a house of cards. Having had that success, they then trained their guns on Capitec with less success. Now there's uh, a further development that they're actually getting fined 50 million rand by the South African authorities because of what they were saying about Capitec. This all sounds real strange because if you've got a hedge fund that is making assertions um, about a company, does it now stand to be fined by the authorities of the country where the, that company is domiciled? It's so interesting, isn't it? No, you're right. You're right. I mean, I um, I can't recollect in the history of South Africa uh, this ever happening, uh, where, as you say, um, you know, a um, an investor. Let's let's start of calling them an investor. You know, because investors can say positive things and they can say negative things. So, so you know, when you say positive things about a company because you own the share, you know, and there were a lot of fund managers that, for example, said positive things about Steinhoff and they own that share, uh, you know, and then, and then you know, that investment fell maybe 90, 95%. And there was no ramifications for them. Uh, it's always much riskier when you take the other side and, and, and you, uh, you um, say negative things about a company in the hope that the share price will fall. Um, I think, you know, what's really interesting over here, as you say, you know, firstly, this seems to be the first time in South Africa that this has ever happened. Also, Viceroy is not a South African uh, uh, company. It's not domiciled in South Africa. It's not subject to any South African regulation. They don't pay tax in South Africa. Uh, so so the regulator has no direct impact uh, or, or, or say, you know, because normally a regulator would fine you and if you can't pay the fine, then we would withdraw your license and you wouldn't be able to operate. Uh, they don't have that over, over, over Viceroy. But uh, in terms of the Financial Markets Act, they are able to successfully prosecute them, even though I think they're domiciled in uh, Delaware in the US. Um, so very, very interesting. Um, and what what the regulator uh, uh, is, is, is saying, part of what they're saying is that... Um, uh, a bank. So Capitec is a bank, and it's you know the 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 uh, the financial uh, the integrity of the financial system in the country is very dependent on the strength of its bank banks. And Capitec is one of the big five biggest banks in South Africa. And they're saying that that you know if there's negative or if there's false misleading information, factually incorrect information that's spread about a bank, that could lead to a run on the bank, and that could have ramifications for the financial stability of the country. And that would be different from let's say, uh, a Steinhoff where, where Viceroy did say negative things that proved to be correct. Uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's no systemic risk. You know, if Steinhoff goes under uh, because of that, firstly, 
the chance of it going under because of a negative report is very different because in a bank, what tends to happen if there's people are concerned about a bank, then depositors pull their money. Uh, and that's what we call the run, a run on the bank. So depositors get scared. Well, I don't know, is there something wrong with Capitech? Maybe my deposit's not safe. You know, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's very, very interesting. And also, you know, what, what uh, uh, the regulator has said, the, F, the FCSA, the, the FSCA has said is that um, in the engagements with Viceroy, um, uh, in the we're going back to 2008, uh, they asked them to correct uh, false, misleading, uh, deceptive statements, and Viceroy didn't do any of that. So the regulator is saying, you know, we've asked them to correct uh, uh, factual uh, inaccuracies, um, deceptive, misleading statements that have the potential to cause a systemic risk uh, uh, in South Africa, uh, and they haven't done that. Uh, and they're also saying the regulator is saying, you know, we've given them the opportunity of responding, and they haven't they haven't engaged with us. Uh, although Viceroy seems to be saying the opposite. Viceroy is saying, you know, you know uh, we're not aware of these allegations or we're not aware of the severity of the allegations and we haven't been given a proper chance to uh, to respond. But it's a big number, uh, 50 million uh, rand. Viceroy is a very small outfit. There's only uh, three people and they were they were unheard of before, certainly in South Africa, before the uh, before 2017 when they uh, had that negative report on Steinhoff and because that came uh, to pass it, it was it was it was correct. You know they gained enormous publicity and credibility, which you know they then used to Capitec. Uh, Capitec share price fell by it was up to twenty three percent, which is an enormous number. You know given that Capitec has a market capitalization of well over a hundred billion rand, so it was a material impact. Uh, and you know that that call turned out to be wrong, but it did cause uh, you know enormous concern. Uh, uh, with Capitec, obviously with Capitec shareholders, with the regulators, um, and uh, you know Capitec did a lot of work, including I think they got in Intellidex, uh, an independent research outfit, and they looked at Viceroy's uh, report. They went through it, and in their opinion, they said that you know the quality of the research uh, and substantiating the research was you know was woefully uh, inadequate. So it is a very very interesting story. This. But the fact that they have that this has now been reopened, and Viceroy is saying, "Well, this gives us the opportunity to get even more deeply into Capitec's books." You would think that Capitec really just would want this all to go away, but now it it has resurfaced. Yes, I think you're right. I think you know Capitec. Uh, you know they. To their credit, at the time, they were very proactive. You know, the management team was very proactive in talking. You know, they, they didn't say no comment. They didn't sweep it under the carpet. You know, they uh, they responded uh, a lot. As I said, they 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 commissioned an independent uh, research outfit to have a look at it. Um, you know, so 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 they uh, they took it head on and they addressed it uh, and they they dealt with it satisfactorily because the share price recovered and as we know, the share price today you know is a lot higher and the business is doing very well. And a lot of the concerns about sort of you know you, you uh, uh, loan sharks and you rolling loans and your 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 clients are in arrears, but you're sort of rolling those loans, so you're not showing the arrears, and that's going to result in enormous bad debts. Uh, that hasn't come to pass, you know, even even despite the negative economic environment made worse by COVID. So Capitec has done really really well, and you know that would demonstrate from what we can see, um, you know that that uh, those allegations uh, uh, were unfounded. Um, but a regulator, sorry, just adding, a regulator takes a long time to do things. And I think that's the problem over here. You know, regulators, uh, they don't move at the same pace as the private sector. And they've also got more work to do to, you know, to get a decision uh, like this to impose a fine. You know, they'd have to do a lot of work. So the business is, you know, a lot further ahead than the regulator. The business is worried about other things. As you say, the regulator pops their head up 
and and raises an issue that KP Tech has dealt with and probably doesn't want to see again. Stephen, bottom line, uh, if you own Capitech shares or if you own Steinhoff shares, what would you do? Well, so I think Capitech has proven itself. You know, it's a blue chip company. Uh, as I say, they've weathered this storm. They've, they've, you know, if you go back in time, there was concerns around when African Bank went into a curatorship that, you know, uh, it's, very, it's very much the same customers and business model that Capitech has to African Bank. A lot of people were concerned about uh, Capitech's bad debts, you know, and they managed that very well. They didn't have, you know, anywhere near uh, uh, the kind of problems that an African bank had. They've consistently grown earnings. They're growing their customer base. They're improving profitability. They're diversifying into funeral products and others, and they've now gone into business banking. So, you know, I think, I think Capitech is a blue chip bank. It's not a cheap bank. It does trade at a much higher multiple, but deservedly so. So, you know, I don't think there's a problem uh, if you're owning Capitech. You know, I, I don't think that the... Um, the regulator's fine against Viceroy has any impact on the business, and I wouldn't expect it to have a you know any 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 meaningful impact on the business. Uh, Steinhoff is is really a, you know if you if you uh, uh, if you want to take a punt on something, uh, you know maybe the, you can't get to the casino. You know maybe uh, you know Steinhoff would be <laughs> a better bit, but it's, it's you know it really as I said earlier, it's a speculative investment uh, because. You know, there's just too much uncertainty to have any confidence that, you know, uh, it's probably one of those where, you know, you're either going to do really well or really badly over the next few years. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Welcome to the big debate <laughs> Thursday. And here we have Pete Fillion and Bernard Mostert uh, in our virtual studio. Lovely to be talking with you guys. Just by way of background, uh, Bernard uh, is a co-founder of a company called Techie Town. It was sold into Steinhoff just before Steinhoff collapsed. Bernard is upset about this. He's taking Steinhoff to court and in the process. In fact, today, Bernard, you, you were in court today on your liquidation hearing. Yeah, Alec, we, we're in court as we speak. I stepped out and hence the fact that I look slightly more formal than what I usually do when we speak. Okay, I like the fleece. <laughs> Is that an upgrade from the usual? <laughs> uh, well, I went, definitely from our, our day-to-day attire in George, yes. And Pit Fillion, uh, after our recent discussion, I asked him about your action. And he said that uh, you guys were just being greedy that you could have taken cash at the time that you sold into Steinhoff and that now you're crying over spilt milk. Is that correct, Peter? Am I, am I paraphrasing it correctly? Yeah, I think that's, that's fairly accurate. Fairly accurate yeah. mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's just uh, lay down the, the, the st- or set out the stalls, as it were. We've got a, a YouTube audience, and I'm going to encourage people to actually put in their questions on YouTube if they'd like to participate. But uh, what we could maybe start with you, Bernard, uh, just, just explain to us, what the uh, what your counter is to what Pitt had to say, and then Pitt, maybe you can also give your uh, opinions, and we'll then get into a proper debate, a respectful debate, by the way. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Listen, Alec, I think neither Pitt nor I have any desire to to be in a public spat with one another, and I think if the purpose of this conversation is to um, maybe teach other people that that will get to the same junctures that we got to. Um, what to look for, um, what to consider, and what to rely on. I think that would be. Um, I think that would be useful, and hence the fact that, you know, I think this is a great opportunity for us to unpack it. 
Yeah, I agree. I, th I think that's the whole point of this discussion is there are many learnings people can take from this, both from the entrepreneurship, building a business side of things, and also from the investing. In other words, price relative to value, uh, which is something different to building a business. So I think there's lessons that uh, I, I hope um, the viewership can learn from this uh, episode um, that they can apply. Uh, and if, if we can get that right, then I think we've achieved something very positive. Bernard, let's start off with the idea uh, of actually selling Techie Town in the first place. Because one of the uh, suggestions that Pitt or allegations that Pitt made was that you got a very high price because you were prepared to accept Steinhoff paper. And as a consequence of that, you really took your chances by taking their paper. How did, it, how did the, the decision to sell Techie Town into Steinhoff come about? Oh, Alec, I, you know, the first thing is that um, the contention of whether we were greedy to accept paper and whether we were, that's the first one. The second was, were we overpaid? But we must, of course, remember that we were not paid at all. Um, so I think that is, is something that, that does, uh, is very real in our lives. And then the third is, you know, how do you, what are the things not known to the broader public at large that motivates transactions like this? Um, so the first point is that, you know, I certainly hope that we were not greedy. I don't believe that we were. Uh, two years prior, we had sold for uh, about 42% of the company after a, a really long dating series with a lot of private equity firms. Um, for and and we got about seven hundred million rand for that stuff, you know, and and that was cash, and and so so it went. So then you ask, then why did we do the Steinhoff transaction? Really, only two years later, you know, and and what value did we look at there? So um, the first thing, you know, and and I'm very keen to hear Pitt's view on this because, to be perfectly honest, we were not aware of what our performance was like versus the market because we operated from George, never really dealt in it, et cetera. But, um, you know, if we succeeded in exceeding an EBITDA percentage of 22% in, in any given year, that kind of, you know, said very gently and kindly, kept Brom off my back. So that was, that was, my, that was my hurdle. You know, if above 22%, um, you know, it was fine. Below 22%, the scrutiny was intense. We never realized that that was actually quite a high mark. And then yesterday, you know, I, I did a small calculation and, and I, don't, I can't find any other retail companies in our space that come close to that mark. So um, it worked out at an EBITDA multiple for us at the time of 12 um, at the Steinhoff transaction. And of course, we relied that Steinhoff was true value because Steinhoff, uh, supposedly multi-jurisdictional, uh, lots of advisors, and specifically an iconic auditor in the form of Deloitte. Um, you know, so did we or anybody else, quite a lot of people claim that they weren't aware of the fraud, did, did we or anybody else have the ability to pick up that fraud coming from the outside? Um, I would submit we, we did not have to. Uh, we didn't have the ability to do that um, because Deloitte themselves says that they couldn't pick it up. 
um, the, hundred, the mysterious 106 billion rand, which Steinoff refers to as, as legacy accounting problems today. They don't refer to it as fraud. I'm happy to refer to it as fraud because I've previously referred to it as fraud. So, and then to go into the rationale for our transaction is that, you know, in order to build the techie town, would cost us in the vicinity of between one and one and a half million rand in capex, and then to populate that store and give it a footprint and make sure you're in the right traffic flow, etc. Is you know you're in for a, a we worked on a payback period of three years more or less so our or let's say thirty three percent. So when Steinoff crossed our paths, and it's not true that that we were close with anybody in Steinoff. So, um, Brahm met Marcus personally for the first time in the beginning of 2015. Um, you know, even though they were both in horse racing, um, Brahm never moved in Marcus' circles. He never had any one of the – he didn't win a group one race at that stage. Um, so that's how they met. And then in their conversations, Marcus said, you know, we've got – we bought Pepcor from Christo. Christo is on board. He is our chairman. Um, and in his portfolio of Pepco businesses, there's 500-odd stores that they just can't seem to make work, which is identical to your space. So why don't you come? You put your business with ours. There's 500 billion rands worth of losses absorbed in speciality. Um, you turn it around, and then we give you a five-year employment agreement for five of us, um, and then we restrict anything that you get for three years. So we couldn't sell the shares, you know. So it was neither here nor there because it wasn't like we could get the shares and then sell them. We couldn't sell them. Um, so, and that's exactly what happened. The only thing is that everybody seemingly missed the fraud and um, we were lost on the bus, so to speak. So what do you think of that, Pete? Does that change your views? No, no, not at all. It doesn't change my views in the slightest. So there's a couple of issues here. Um, the first thing is uh, Bernard repeatedly refers to it as a fraud. It has not yet been proven to be a fraud, neither by the South African courts nor by the German courts. And remember, there was a fraud called Wirecard in Germany not that long ago. It took them less than six months to indict and find the management guilty of fraud in Germany which is where Steinhoff was listed. Hasn't happened yet there either. So it might be a fraud. I'm not saying it's not a fraud, but it hasn't yet been proven to be a fraud. It could have been very simply a house of cards built on a lot of debt that collapsed in and itself. That is a possibility still. And that would include a lot of mistakes made by the CEO, Marcus Uester, in putting together such a house of cards. And so that is a possibility. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm saying that's a possibility. So, so that's the one aspect. But I think the other aspect that Bernard refers to here is that everybody else was owning and buying Steinhoff shares. Um, so, you know, why can't we buy or own Steinhoff shares? You know, the Deloitte was there. And, and this is the important part. Now, I've built a business. I've been part of building retail businesses. I've built a fund management business. I know what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I know what it takes to build a business. It's hard work. I understand how entrepreneurs feel about their businesses. There's a lot of emotion attached to it. So I understand that very well. 
But the, building a successful business like Bernard and um, Brom did at Techie Town is different to transacting with that business, investing with the proceeds of that business. Because what they effectively did at Techie Town, they sold Techie Town and took the proceeds and bought Steinhoff shares. If their due diligence, if the extent of their due diligence on their investment in Steinhoff was to believe the auditors and to believe everybody else they were talking about, that is not what an investor does. An investor does, goes in, reads the annual report, kicks the tires, looks at patterns, looks at things that happen in a company, low tax rates, lots of acquisitions, lots of debt, and then asks questions about those sort of thing, things and comes up with an investment thesis. That's what an investor does. And there are many investors that did not invest in Steinhoff because of a lot of question marks about the cash flow, a lot of question marks about the tax rates, and a lot of question marks about acquisition strategy that, they, that was being implemented in the business. So an investor, some investors, did not buy Steinhoff shares. So an investor does a due diligence on investment, and entrepreneur builds a business. Those are two different things. And, and uh, you know, so Bernard, Bernard also says that they had no choice. They had to take Steinhoff shares. Well, their partner in Tacky Town, Actus, who owned 42% of Tacky Town, took cash. And I think in any negotiation, you can negotiate different things. Bernard would know this probably better than me. You can negotiate, you know, if you don't want to take shares, you can negotiate that. Maybe you have to give up a bit on the price to, take, to get cash. I don't know what Actus did, but they got cash. So that, those are all part of the negotiations that take place. I don't think anybody's ever forced to do anything in a transaction that they don't want to do and that they're not comfortable with. So, so those are the two important aspects I want to highlight. First of all is an investor does due diligence on his or her investment, which is Steinhoff. Um, uh, yeah, so, and also the other thing is you can't believe, you can't, your, you can't just believe the auditor and other people, what other people are saying. You have to do it for yourself. Welcome to the Power Pulse podcast series brought to you by Standard Bank. Diroch Maharaj, who's the Senior Manager for Natural Resources, Power and Sustainable Solutions at Standard Bank, is with me today to talk more about Power Pulse. Uh, in our first episode, it was quite strange, uh, Diroch, because when I was talking to your colleagues, Rencher Fantonde and Barry de Yaga, it was in that week that we had the big explosion at Madupi which really emphasized the point that we need to find a different power solution rather than just having this whole centralized issue in Eskom. And I guess the more one looks at this, the more obvious it becomes that as a nation, we really got to get on our bicycles in this regard. Alex, certainly so. And, uh, you know, that is why over this uh, past few years in development um, around the sector, the banks kept a very keen eye on, you know, how it can step into the role of providing and supporting clients in that journey of reducing their uh, reliance on the grid and on, you know, moving into that sustainable environment as well in, in their operational capacity. Yeah, the business case is just getting stronger and stronger because I suppose for one thing, you, you must have uninterrupted power. That's a starting point. I can, I can work from home as well as from the office because we've got solar panels that are at our home. So if Eskom, it's, it's actually, it's a blackout, but they call it uh, load shedding, uh, a kind shedding. word, a diplomatic word. But if there's load shedding yeah. in my area, it doesn't stop me from working. Now that's in a, a very small uh, context. When you think about big organizations who have foundries or manufacturing plants or mines, 
they can't take a chance of having load shedding. So, Alec, you know, the, it's, it's the age-old challenge that a business will face when they're looking at power, and it's through two levers. One is obviously the uninterrupted supply that you mentioned. So you have businesses that need to keep their, their processes running, and especially when you're talking about big organizations that have manufacturing concerns, foundries, um, you know, you, you cannot sometimes uh, fully quantify what effect an interruption power would have on their bottom line ultimately. So uninterrupted power supply is one lever, but the other lever is obviously security and cost. So cost is the other lever, and that's that's another mechanism that we've seen, um, you know, the business case for solar PV being strengthened through because um, I don't think any of us are strangers to the escalations we've seen over the past 10 years as an example. And how is the pricing of solar PV or solar power, not just here in South Africa, but all around the world? Solar PV is um, quite, a, quite a strong contender in that regard. So when you look at the development of the technology, around five years ago, the technology itself was entering what we would refer to as a commercially mature product offering in the market. Um, in specific uh, applications, in specific scenarios, it was able to compete very well in comparison to grid power. Over this period of time, what we've seen develop is the entire technology itself has revolutionized in terms of the output that you're able to produce per square meter. And the cost has also improved quite dramatically and quite, uh, quite a bit in support of this narrative that we're discussing. So in current day, if you were to take uh, any grid tariff around the country, uh, more than 99% of the time, you're bound to get a benefit. And, you know, we obviously, whenever we speak, we speak about tier one, top tier equipment. So we're not speaking about budget equipment. We're talking about the stuff that solar farms, large utility scale farms are made of. So even at that level of quality, it still competes extremely well with the grid power. So the Moore's law is certainly kicking in here in a big way, uh, as it does with most technology. Absolutely. So you do see that mechanism kicking in. So what about power pulse then? What, what Just from a Standard Bank point of view, and I did talk to your colleagues on the, the reason why you have it, but how is it going to help? And why did you guys, why did Standard Bank decide to go this route? So, Alec, uh, in, in line with everything we've discussed thus far, you know, the challenges that clients face, mainly from a sustainability perspective, being the un- un- uninterrupted supply of power as well as the cost security aspects of power, Power Pulse has been developed mainly to address uh, the challenges that a client experiences when they're looking to enter this alternate energy environment and consider solutions from that for their businesses. So we've done quite a bit of work uh, towards the end of 2019. We started to realize that, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to deliver value to clients. However, the industry reputation was starting to suffer a lot of damage, right? And that's because, you know, there's low barriers to entry uh, when it comes to solution providers And because this is very much a gold rush environment, and that's what we refer to it as, especially in the small-scale embedded generation environment, you see solution providers entering the market across the spectrum. So you have highly credible solution providers 
But at the same time, majority of that pool are guys that are not actually equipped to deliver a credible solution. So while there's a lot of value to be delivered, we often see that clients are not receiving that value. In many cases, they, they actually, uh, the experience is not so positive. So that's the one factor. The second factor is that uh, when the client does enter the environment, and even if they are dealing with a credible operator or three or four credible operators in the space, they tend to find themselves in a, in a thick fog because the main challenges they face are around the funding environment. So how do you procure funding for these solutions? A few years ago, even Standard Bank was not able to wrap their minds around this thoroughly. And we've come a long way in that regard in, in understanding how to actually solution from a funding perspective. The technical components of, this, uh, of these solutions are also difficult for the client to understand, especially if energy is not core to their business, if they're not in the energy business. Mm. And the legal and regulatory environment can also be quite challenging for clients to understand. So fair enough, you may be with a credible operator, but you may not feel like you're in the driver's seat as such. And that's what has informed the development of Power Pulse. So as I mentioned, around the end of 2019, we've, we, we pulled a, a, a number of stakeholders across the value chain from the regulator to the municipalities to ESCOM, as well as clients and solution providers into a, a forum. And we had a discussion and unpacked what the pain points are. And that's what's guided us to providing this digital solution. PowerPulse by Standard Bank is an end-to-end online solution built to match businesses with trusted suppliers and deliver the right technical, legal, and funding solutions. For more details, email us at powerpulse at standardbank.co.za. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Well, we've caught Rob Hersoff in between appointments. Uh, Rob, lovely talking with you. I, I really just wanted to find out uh, how the reaction was, uh, first of all, to... Uh, what you heard at the business conference, I know what the reaction was to what you said at the business conference, but uh, what you heard there about Zambia, because you're incredibly quick off the mark uh, by establishing or putting together an investment conference uh, on what could be a, one of the most exciting countries on the continent now. Did, did, did what Muzi have to say, which was very positive about Zambia, uh, Muzi Maimani, did that have any influence or would you already, already decided to go ahead with this? So I met uh, HH about eight years ago uh, through one of my businesses in West Africa. And like him, was hugely impressed with him and have stayed sort of indirectly in touch with him. And every time he ran, you know, for president and got frustrated, and you know what I mean by that, you know, we'd reach out and say, look, good for you, keep on going. And then he made it. And we were so thrilled. And what Moosey said at your conference, the business conference was, colonialization Africa was decolonialized north to south. And the same thing's happening. Malawi's got, you know, Lazarus now as president. Um, 
HH is an extraordinary man in power in Zambia, and hopefully the good people will be elected and this wonderful momentum is moving south. Rob, the Invest Africa operation, what many people don't know is that you've been promoting investment into Africa. Uh, that organization, what exactly does it do and, and why the attention now in Zambia? I set up Invest Africa about 12 years ago, and it's uh, one of my smaller businesses in terms of revenue and profit, profitability, but it punches way above its weight. And with my superb CEO, Karen Taylor, we host conferences around the world um, focusing on sensibly evangelizing investment into Africa. And we've done many um, investor delegations around Africa and have been a big fan of Zambia, but not under Lungu. And so now that HH has been elected, we're, you know, we're ready to go. And what's the reaction been like to the, it is an online conference because of COVID, uh, to your outreach for investors to have a look at what Zambia offers now? Well, look, people have always loved Zambia from a uh, tourist point of view, and there have always been opportunities in mining and other areas. But people have kind of backed off Zambia because of uh, President Lungu and, you know, his alliance with China, his, uh, you know, his, I think, crazy decisions. And with having HH in power now, Zambia is open for business. The reaction, though, are you getting um, lots of non-African, non-traditional African investors having a look at the continent as a consequence of this? At the, at the continent, yes. At Zambia, they will now, is the answer. Absolutely. You know, he's exactly the kind of person who uh, should be in charge of Zambia. And, you know, people like him in other parts of Africa, we're really hoping for people like him. He is um, educated, has been in- educated internationally. He is a businessman. He understands how economies work. What about the appointments yeah. to his cabinet? Is there anything there that, that, uh, that, that encouraged you? Well, I don't know the members themselves, but uh, knowing him knowing what he'd like to do as a reformer, as a free market peer, you know, his appointments will be people like that. I think he'll deregulate, he'll um, really encourage foreign direct investment, he'll focus on technology, he'll fire up education and the young people. Uh, Zambia is going to be a place to, to look at very closely and I think a great place to invest. So it's investable, which is the opposite, unfortunately, of where we are in South Africa right now. Sadly so, in, in my view as well. I'm not going to be giving, uh, giving away too much about what you said at the conference because I'm pretty sure <laughs> once we've got the, the video, the YouTube video together, it will be uh, extremely well, well watched and we don't want to have too many spoilers. But in essence, if you were to compare uh, the Southern African countries – Malawi down uh, which of them would be top of your list for uh, foreign investors who, who would be knocking at your door and asking your, your uh, advice so Malawi and Zambia very much so um, Botswana and Namibia have always been pretty good countries to invest in but South Africa is not on the list not on my list anyway you know, until they get rid of PWC um, you know, black empowerment has been a complete disaster and, and, and they've got to, you know, the government here has to lift regulations. And they never mention economic growth. So it scares away foreign direct investment. 
and I'm not surprised. So Malawi, Zambia, Namibia, Botswana. How much money is waiting, potentially, to come into this part of the world? A wall of money. I mean, people have loved South Africa for centuries, have invested here successfully, as the same with Zimbabwe. But, you know, at the moment, that wall is either investing elsewhere or waiting for good things to happen. And those things haven't happened yet. Not in, not in Zimbabwe and South Africa. They're still to come. So the conference that you're putting together on Zambia or inv- the investment opportunities in Zambia, how long does it take after making this kind of an exposure, given that, that uh, HH was only elected last month, so he's only been in office uh, for a very short period of time. How, what is the delay factor between getting the information out and actually seeing money uh, on the ground? So the conference is not specifically about Zambia, but, it, but the headline uh, speech or interview is with HH. So Zambia is going to be very much on you know, the agenda. How much time does it take? Very little for people that know the country, that have been waiting for these opportunities, or that have invested before and are looking for other opportunities. And for the others, you know, it's, it's a matter of months. You know, we'll do an investor delegation to Zambia, and it's pr- pretty quick because people know what they're looking for. Have, have they got gold there? Because you've got a SPAC on the New York Stock Exchange with $400 million that's looking for a place to invest. Yeah, but not big enough. We need a, a large producing gold operation. So sadly, sadly, I don't think it'll be Zambia. But uh, have you got any prospects on the continent? <laughs> Can't say anything. It's a public company. <laughs> but thanks for trying, Alex. Today is Thursday, September 9th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Janet Yellen warned that the U.S. Treasury could run out of cash next month, and PayPal is building up its buy-now-pay-later business. Defense lawyers for Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes said failing to build up a business isn't a crime. Plus, yesterday was the opening day for the world's largest facility built to suck carbon dioxide right out of the air. Ever wondered what that looks like? What you would see is kind of like a wall of dozens of fans spinning. And that's it. It just looks like this magic black box. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Yesterday was the opening salvo in a closely watched Silicon Valley trial involving failed blood testing startup Theranos, a company once valued at $9 billion. Its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, is facing charges of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Her lawyers told a federal judge that Holmes' failure to build her startup into a viable business was not a crime. Prosecutors alleged that Holmes and a former Theranos president falsely promoted the company's finances and its technology, despite knowing it had issues with reliability. A lot of people will be watching this trial, which is expected to scrutinize Silicon Valley's promotional culture and Holmes's mental state. The online payments giant PayPal is spending $2.7 billion to buy a Japanese group called Payday. It specializes in the growing field of buy now, pay later technology. You may have noticed this option when you're checking out online. The buy now, pay later choice is focusing on younger consumers and people who have bad credit. The FT's Dave Lee unpacks this a little more. 
Well, it's the latest in a long line now of very interesting moves in the buy now, pay later space. This idea that, you know, rather than paying the full cost of an item online up front, you can spread it usually into only three or four uh, payments over the next few weeks. Um, PayPal has offered its own version of buy now, pay later in the US. What it's going to do with paydies is get the, the Japanese market, it's going to get a lot of the Asia Pacific market. And so it just gives them more presence in what is a, a quite intriguing growing part of how business is done online. And so this is, you know, it's, it's an emerging way to get people to spend money. It's an emerging way to get people to spend more money as well. So Dave, who are the other big players trying to get ahead in this uh, buy now, pay later market? Well, it's becoming pretty congested. So we, we saw uh, a big, big deal last month where Square said it was going to acquire an Australian buy now, pay later firm called Afterpay. And then, you know, there was another deal with a firm, which is a, a San Francisco based provider. Uh, one of their big clients is, is Peloton, who, you know, that you can pay that in installments through a firm, but also a firm have now signed a deal with Amazon so that if you have a product or a basket that's more than $50, you can pay that in installments with a firm. And so, you know, what we're seeing is this rush now to make sure that these major companies are positioned. And ultimately, what PayPal is trying to do is create what they call a super app that does all all sorts of different functions, whether it's cryptocurrency, investing, saving, and so forth. And this is all part of that mix. It's just seen as one part now of the the banking mix that um, modern consumers want. That's the FT's Dave Lee. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is urging Congress to raise the government's borrowing limit. In a letter to leading lawmakers yesterday, Yellen said the Treasury's coffers could be out of cash in October. The Biden administration is worried about a possible debt default. Now, it used to be routine for Congress to increase the borrowing limit so the Treasury could pay for the things Congress had already approved. But in past years, Republicans resisted and it pushed the U.S. close to default. In her letter, Yellen warned lawmakers of the harm of waiting until the last minute. The world's largest direct carbon capture plan has just opened for business. It's in Iceland, and it's being operated by a Swiss engineering startup called Climeworks. The plant is called Orca, and it will collect about 4,000 tons of carbon dioxide every year figure out how significant this is, I'm joined by our environment correspondent, Leslie Hook. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Mark. So, Leslie, how important is this plant and the technology that it uses? Well, the technology known as direct air capture has been the focus of a lot of energy, effort, and money for the last couple years. The idea is that if we could only pull enough carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, then that would really help solve the problem of global warming. So it's a very appealing concept, but it's never been executed at scale before. And this plant is about five times bigger than the next biggest plant that's currently operating, even though it's still a long ways from pulling the billions of tons per year that would be needed to really balance out emissions on the the planet. The Orca plant will capture about 4,000 tons a year of carbon dioxide, which is less than like a small city in the U.S. would emit. So it's a, it's a small step forward, but it's a technology that its advocates hope will really bring about a big change in terms of balancing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. All right. Walk me through it. How does this technology work? How do you capture carbon? And, and you know what, when, when you got it, 
what do you do with it? Pulling carbon dioxide from the air is really hard because the atmosphere is only 0.04% carbon dioxide. So you have to get a lot of air to pass over what is basically like a contact surface. You can imagine it like a sponge. Some people think of it more like glue. So you have big fans. They blow the air over this contact surface. The chemicals there bind with the CO2. And once they've collected enough of the CO2, then the collector device gets closed and heated. The heating process causes the CO2 molecules to be released, and the CO2 gas is captured in a more pure form, and it's stored in a tank before being injected underground. Now, there's lots of things you can do with CO2. You can use it to make fizzy drinks. You can pump it into a greenhouse to help the plants grow better. This new plant in Iceland will be permanently storing the CO2 underground. So they'll take that CO2 mix it with water and inject it deep underground where it will react with a rock formation underground that's made of basalt. And over a two-year period, the CO2 will basically turn into rock. Now, how fast can this technology actually grow and spread? Well, I think the sector is kind of limited right now by how fast these machines can be built, what's the manufacturing process, Climeworks says that they want to be extracting millions of tons of CO2 a year by 2027. It has potential to grow a lot, but right now the cost is is quite expensive. Climeworks charges 1,000 euros per ton of CO2. Um, so if you want to offset your personal emissions by, by making sure that they're matched up by carbon dioxide removal in Iceland, uh, then you will be paying 1,000 euros per ton of CO2. So um, that compares to, you know, as much as just $5 or $10 for like a, a forest type of offset. So I think the market will be limited by that extremely high price. It's not economical at the moment, not economical yet at a really big scale. You know, high prices aside, what do skeptics say about this technology? I think the skeptics say that there's a bit of a moral hazard in focusing too much on direct air capture, that the world needs to cut its emissions right now. And we can't sit around and and hope that, you know, we'll be rescued by this uh, miracle technology. So I think that there are some uh, skeptics and a point out that even if when we have direct air capture, the world will still need to cut its emissions and really cut its fossil fuel use in addition to having direct air capture. So this is not a a get out of jail free card at all. Leslie Hook is the FT's environment and clean energy correspondent. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Mark. Before we go, more fallout from Wirecard and other financial scandals. The accounting firm EY, formerly known as Ernst & Young, said it would invest $2.5 billion over the next three years to improve the quality of its audits. EY had been auditing the defunct German financial firm Wirecard and missed the fraud that led to the company's unraveling. It's been reprimanding for its failings in other scandals, too. EY's chief executive said the money would help improve the accounting firm's ability to detect fraud and will be invested in new technologies like artificial intelligence. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, thanks for being with us today and throughout this week. We'll be back again on Monday from the Biz News team. Until then, cheerio. 
You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.